How are you? Are you having a good evening? Having fun? Are you out with friends? Are you happy? Relaxing? Having a good time? With your friends? How do you feel about them? Your friends? Do you trust them implicitly? Unreservedly? Would you trust them with your life? How do they feel about you, do you think? Do they trust you? Unreservedly? Would they trust you with their lives? Would they trust you with their pets or their kids? How open are you with your friends? How open are you with your family? How much do you share? How much do they share? Do you ever feel a little bit left out? Isolated? Are you sitting comfortably? Are you starting to perhaps feel a little bit uncomfortable? Are you having doubts? Maybe you had doubts before but shunned them, pushed them to the back of your mind. Think now. Take a few moments to consider. Think now. Answer honestly. When did you actually first realise that no one gives a fuck? That most of the people you call friends merely tolerate you? That your so-called friends think you're a waste of space? That your so-called friends find you irritating beyond measure? That your so-called friends think you're a cunt? That your colleagues can't abide you? That your workmates talk about you behind your back, praying you'll call in sick because they hate you and think you're a cunt too? That in actual fact your family, distant and immediate, loathe you and the skin your sorry existence is bagged up in? When did you discover that your parents regret that you'd ever been born? That your wife regrets having met you and every moment ever since? Do you know your kids despise you or are you simply burying your head in the sand? You hate yourself, so why should anyone else like you better? You're a snivelling piece of shit and you know you know the world would be better off without you. You know, unspoken, unshared, you've thought it enough times in those dark, dark moments. Those dark moments you refuse to acknowledge, let alone confront. Confront them now. Face them now. It's not just your paranoia. It's not just your self-loathing. Everyone does hate you. They do think you're spineless. They do think you're obnoxious. They do think you're a lech. They do think you're maladjusted. So what are you going to do about it? Huh? Give up. Die. Accept it. Everyone hates you. Everyone thinks you're a cunt or is otherwise indifferent at best. No one cares. No one gives a fuck. No one would notice if you weren't here tomorrow. So really, truly, honestly, and answer truthfully, what is the fucking point? Welcome to... It's not a rod! It's an... Articulate Warbling. Hosted by Zach Ferguson. Edited and produced at Badgerstrift Studio. 
If you enjoyed this podcast, please contact us at pgttcm.com so we can make more. And let us know. We would love to make more of this show for you. And here he is, Zach Ferguson. Hello ladies and gentlemen and welcome to episode 11 of It's Not Her Aunt, It's Articulate Warbling with the Warbler himself, Zach Ferguson. Which is I, which is me. Today's going to be a hodgepodge uh, affair. It's going to have a whole load of different vignettes pieces. I'll be reviewing a few indie uh, novels, books. First of all be the Rage Monologues by Christopher Nosnibor. Man, oh man by Mike and I really hope I don't bodge his name Mike no Mike Karoa and if that's not pronounced and you're listening to this uh, I do apologize and if you feel belittled or you feel that I'm not doing my just dues to the pronunciation of your name send me a voice clip it and I will hope I'll include it at some point, it will just randomly just pop out. It will be like, it's Mike Karowa or Karawawaw or whatever the fuck. Just pronounce it right, you stupid British fuck. Let's see, I'm doing an impersonation. I've never met the man. I've, I've literally exchanged a few words with him on Twitter, but great writer. Also, minor uh, contemplative analysis pieces. And I really want to start off this episode by talking about something that has been brought up in light of Martin Scorsese's recent opinion about Marvel movies not being cinema and him viewing them as roller coaster movies and we all know that I am a lover of high art, low art, all forms of art <laughs> but uh, Martin Scorsese, it's not a question of cinema, it's a question of era, it's a question of generation, it's a question of his overall uh, estimation of high art, low brow art and he really puts Modern cinema, the emblem of what modern cinema is, franchises, big multi-sharing universes. Specifically, he was honing in on Marvel, which, you know, a lot of people know that I do have a niggling issue with. I think a lot of their works don't allow filmmakers to work singly or individually. And even those filmmakers like Taika Waititi, James Gunn, they still have to conform to a certain consensus an overall blueprint mapped out by Kevin Feige and whomever else is in control. There's not just Kevin Feige at the head of this up until recently, whereas it's like, yeah, Feige is the main man, motherfucks. You don't question the Feigster. But um, <laughs> it's a question of estimations and era. Uh, the film critic Mark Hermo did a piece on his own podcast where he said it's kind of the notion where past generations listen to someone else's music taste and they go, oh damn kids, oh it's not like what they used to be. There's, It's kind of that but at the same time it isn't. Martin Scorsese and Francis Ford Coppola who really contradicted himself in a recent piece where he said, from cinema you have to learn, you have to guard things, you have to eat it up in, and it's like, yes, this is coming from a guy who hasn't made a decent film uh, since Apocalypse Now. So, and a guy who needs to get off his high horse, a guy who can't get any funding because he hasn't made any decent films in recent times. Uh, someone who's like so egotistical, Mark Scorsese, he is fluent in cinema, early cinema, silent cinema, or he just lives and breathes it. 
but obviously he's so embroiled with that moment and his generation and his nostalgic companionship that he doesn't really look forward to modern filmmaking and what modern films is now. He works within a very modernistic society and realm and way things are working. I mean, he, this guy wasn't going to get the budget for The Irishman from any big studios. Because Mark Scorsese, as much as he's a big, well-renowned name, his films aren't really box office successes. He's still that auteur with some minor flashes of financial viability and uh, accessibility for a studio to think, OK, let's give a budget to him. And I really take issue with Francis Ford Coppola more so. He's basically jumping on the bandwagon and wanting to, you know, outshine Scorsese in estimation. Like, I'm one of the same generation as Marty. I have something to say. I'm going to call it out for what it is. It's shit. Blah, 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 blah. That's just me misquoting, but that was pretty much what he was saying. He, he said something along the lines, it's a shambles, but he doesn't learn. What you learn from watching Marvel films is you, you have to gauge how society and children and people of this generation are appreciating it. This is cinema to them. Not the cinema of the 80s, not the cinemas of the 60s, 50s, 40s, 30s, 20s, 70s, even the early 90s, late 80s. Children of this era aren't really that interested unless they're interested in cinema, the artistry. Your common child now has more chance and more, you know, there's more chance of meeting a child who's watched all the Marvel films and even known who Martin Scorsese is. Like, Martin Scorsese views them as roller coasters and not cinema. Well, they are. And I think you need to take the the, uh, the offerance of opinion that Francis Ford have, where he's going, you need to learn something from cinema. He needs to teach you. Well, dude, watch these films before you judge them, because it might teach you something. Get with the fucking times. And again, it's not to do with outdatedness or outmodedness. I just think Francis Ford Coppola is just speaking up because he needs a little bit of hype and, you know... A great furor up and around and as much excitement around him because all he's been doing recently is just be making really expensive wine that nobody wants um but martin scorsese his estimations of cinema he thinks he's still of the tradition he's making movies of the tradition that he loved that he's a connoisseur of that he's a critic of that he's an encyclopedically inclined individual and emblem of. But he's working within the confines. Netflix gave him a lot of money to make The Irishman using such digital effects heavily um, evolved in the ways of Marvel movies, in particular uh, Civil War and everything else recently. If they, uh, studios and visual effects teams behind that didn't push and strive for the best within those Marvel films, Scorsese wouldn't have been able to make The Irishman. Also, he's working within a very modernistic, very commercial, consumerist, media etch driven uh, world. He's always steered it, but been able to somehow create the films he wants to. But again, I feel that he doesn't get to make a lot of the films that he wants because he's still tra- stuck within that traditionalism, anticipating for it the studios or the execs or the system itself to work around him when he should work around that. For someone who's such a connoisseur and knowledgeable man about the evolution of cinema and its traditionalisms and its love, like the man has made modern films of digital technology 3d films he has tackled it so i think he's being a bit of a hypocrite now he's getting later in his career and he's finding it harder to make movies but you're working within this modernist system that benefits you netflix basically was built upon properties such as daredevil the original series a great big appeal for netflix at some point was when marvel had a contract with them to put original mature content there that didn't come before if they didn't have that broader 
and you know roller coaster aesthetic and doling out of money strategy and schemata they wouldn't have offered you the irishman he's got these traditionalist views and these puritan views of cinema and art of being high art but using the constructs of what he might view as low art or low brow art or low brow art fuss the machinations and system of hollywoodization and commercialism and the whole package of financial gain he kind of thinks he's working himself around it but he's benefiting from the same bankroll the same structure that enables films like marvel to be created for him to say that they're not cinema has caused great debate but i don't think he should be picked apart for this i don't think he's an old age curmudgeon i think he could appreciate them for the singular things but he's not gonna he's not seeing the broader picture he's not appreciating it seeing this is what cinema is at this moment in time yes there'll be filmmakers like himself that want to uphold that traditionalism uphold the emblematic filmic uh, history and that plethora of emotion and aura and nostalgia and that just comforting warm glow of keeping something almost puritan in its existence keeping something sanctified and what cinema used to be ingested and digested and wholly enraptured and rolled into it's like a blanket some people sneer at cinema it's a generational thing and i think someone who has been so progressive in certain ways i think he's done it with you know, a little bit of a shiver running down his spine and a little bit of a grimace behind those uh, stoic, affirmed, clamped down lips with that little sheepish, uh, sly grin creeping out, thinking he's got one over the system. Not fast realising the system has one over him. The Irishman has barely made it into any cinemas because of that contractual overall streaming strata machination and system work of that Netflix works. He's using technology to further and create his vision. It's not like he hasn't used visual effects before, but everything that I think that Scorsese is picking upon these modernist, non-cinematic films, they're in the cinemas, they earn the money, they have an audience. I'm not even of the age of Marvel. I saw Iron Man in 2008, and what I grew up with was the X-Men films and the original Sam Raimi films. So when Iron Man came along, it was just another one. And as it grew and evolved, I felt less inclined and less associated and emo emo emotionally uh, uh, attached to these Marvel films. Yes, I'm not going to lie, Endgame had me weeping because of that relationship with Robert Downey Jr. There is something very hollow and shallow about the structures of these franchise films. DC, what they are doing, and Warner Brothers, they are now creating pieces of art in and of themselves, and I think that's why Scorsese's overall negative outlook and opinion didn't translate there, because he had a little bit of an association at one point. He was originally going to produce Joker. And he views their almost network as potentiality, whereas Marvel is this affirmed to fix thing. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. And the only garnered rules and regulations and experiences and overall opinion pieces that nothing is broken is because fans are seeing it and loving it and the money is coming in. There is a lot of issue with Marvel films. It's not high art, but it's entertainment. It's popcorn, it's popcorn fair. And Scorsese has done one film of this ilk, Hugo, but in a lot of ways, it had that modernistic sheen, it had that thing where it is ushering on and acknowledging the past, you know, illuminaries, the alumni, the visionaries, the infant terribles, you know, like, like Georges Méliès. It was a contradiction of using modernistic technologies to also further the appreciation of old technologies and machinations and systems and cinematique, cinematograph type things of honour in cinema. I think he's a bit of a contradictory fellow. He's getting to an age where, you know, he's probably feeling more affirmed in his position on the tapestry of film and that he maybe wants to keep up his image of being a purist. Maybe he does watch Marvel 
Marvel films. Maybe he doesn't, but he's allowed to have that opinion. But I think it's in that factor of not just the generational thing, but of the thing of not really fuss realising and giving yourself over to it. You, if you want to have a better, broader notion of it, give yourself over and realise that this is what modern cinema is looking like. Though there may be films that usher, usher in an old era and reintroduce another generation to something this, that, the other, these types of films aren't going away anytime soon. And I think he needs to try and enjoy them whilst they're here and also become part of the system and evolve with it instead of trying to be the odd, the odd sore thumb out with that little twisted pinky that is in the shape of Francis Ford Coppola who just wants to be controversial for controversial sake. So say, this is a guy who has a controversial audio commentary by Francis Ford Coppola. It's just Francis Ford Coppola has no, he has no need to be on the fringes of this argument. He's just jumping up on to something else and just taking it as his own and, you know, just making the media frenzy and spiraling on top of it. He's not trying to be affirmed on concrete in, um, in uh, you know, union and solidarity with his fellow filmmakers. It's just Francis Ford being Francis Ford, a twat. But Martin Scorsese, I, I think there's a distinction. I am a lover of cinema in every form. I have that Puritan opinion, I have the opinions of a Christopher Nolan, but I also have the opinions of a Spielberg, I also have the opinions of a Ben Wheatley, I also have the viewpoint of a filmmaker such as, <laughs> as sad as it may be, um, a John Favreau, of a George Lucas, of a J.J. Abrams, I um, have the ideologies of all these filmmakers, I, I enjoy fi film, its culture, its history, from all other avenues, but I think Mark Scorsese is so secure in being that guy who pontificates, remunerates and, you know, contemplates and looks off forlornly to a lost era of cinema that really was subject to him, and it doesn't detract anything, cinema that is out there now doesn't detract that love initially, but I think he needs to try and start working himself around it instead of it working itself around him, I think he's in a very comfortable position as a filmmaker, he is very privileged in what he gets to do and that he gets to continue to do, but the system that enables these big films to be made, in a lot of ways enables him to still create the art of which he wants and intends. It is a question of high art and low art upon uh, biasness and histories, but I think even millennials, sad as they are, that's their cinema. People of my era, a lot of people are so shocked that I even know the works of Fritz Lang, Georges Méliès, um, you know, Truffaut, uh, Godard, Melville, all such and sundry. I love cinema because it's storytelling, it's visual, it's symbiotic, it's very personal and interconnected, um, aesthetically, filmically, everything about cinema is just wondrous, it's escapism, but not only that, it offers a, it lends a commentary, there's so much density and so many layers to film, and though Marvel may not have that from the outside, deeply rooted subliminally, there are messages in there that are very good, sometimes they are very um, faux and disingenuous and just forced upon the audience and you can feel it and due to it being so forced and put up on and tagged in and stapled in and just forced in that it does come across as disingenuous and does lower it as a film and as a story but it's not low art it's working up to the greatest degrees but like all cinema there are faults there are flaws in and around their creations their machinations, their, their evolutions through history, opinion, critics, audiences, their
evolution. A film doesn't just stop after releasing cinema. It grows, it matures, uh, it may become a cult, it may become obsolete, it may be rediscovered. That's the thing about cinema. It's solidified and it's concretized and it's there and it's up for interpretation and evaluation. And I am of the mind frame that I love the works of Neville Dean and Taylor, who are the complete antithesis to Puritan cinema. But then again, I am a huge fan of the likes of uh, F.W. Murnau, D.W. Griffiths, all the great silent cinema creators and many, many more. But it doesn't mean I can't like other modernist filmmakers. Ben, ben Wheatley, I can see a great, a, a great, you know, a great potentiality there to stretch out into something like an action film, which he is doing with Tomb Raider 2, and then in, imbuing it with Wheatleyisms. But how would Scorsese feel about that, doing a sequel to an already established franchise based upon a video game? Would he consider that low art? Has his opinion lowered of Ben Wheatley from them being friends and uh, collaborators? Wheatley having worked with Scorsese on Free Fire, Scorsese bankrolling that whole film? Does he go low in his estimation? Or is it because he's biased and he, he believes that he's got capabilities of that? It would it be different if Scorsese were friends of a director and they went on to do a Marvel film? I think he needs, to change, he needs to change his perspective. He needs to change his externalizations and the way he appropriates and instigates and talks about cinema, especially modern cinema, because he's coming across as a hypocrite and a little bit blind and a little bit naive and ignorant, considering someone who's so, he's got such a wealth of knowledge <clears throat> And I view that some of the likes of Ben Wheatley have that capability, but I can also see where the likes of Ben Wheatley can cater to the likes and wants and loves and puritanisms that uh, Martin Scorsese absolutely adores and wants to keep refined. The same with Nolan. But what I'm trying to make, what I'm trying to get at is, I love Crank 2 as much as I love Fritz Lang's Dr. Mabuse, but it's those different levels. It's just if you allow yourself, if you quarantine yourself into the certain mind that I'm going to be the cultish person, I'm going to be that person, I'm going to be this person, I'm going to be that person. If you label yourself and put yourself in a box, it, it changes you as an individual. It also, it dampens you. It doesn't broaden your horizons. It quarantines you. It keeps you in that select place. And you kind of burrow in on yourself and you lose out on a whole other plethora of great stories and this is the same with people who are like, I only read indie books or arty-farty books, experimental books. That's not you broadening your horizons. That's not you taking on different experiences, whether entertainment, whether sociologically uh, inclined, whether satirical, whether humorous, whether to imbue you with something aside from maybe intellectual uh, sparkings in your brain piece. Maybe it's just uh, one hit, one bit of satisfaction and entertainment. Don't put yourself in that box because you want to stand out as more as an individual because it comes across as disingenuous. And I think that's where Martin Scorsese is. He sees himself fit in this one box that he's crafted himself and made himself notorious for and if he goes against those principles that he has created in the media's eye and in the history of all of his interviews and all that he has said before and that will come before he doesn't want to break that facade and I think there's a disingenuousness about that or unless there isn't disingenuousness he's just such a puritan of the wealth of cinema and what he expects and anticipates and is scared from this in the future but him viewing modern cinema as a non-existent thing and not being cinema is very stupid naive and rather childish but he can have his opinion and he deserves his opinion as do everyone but I don't think it's a question of just being disingenuous and being naive I think there's a question of the different boundaries of one's own limits and uh, estimations and the barometer of how high you view something in the cultural status or your own personal social bias constructed environment so I don't know, it'd be interesting to know if anyone else has anything to contribute to this. But 
it was just something very interesting. Is it to do with high art, low art? Is it to do with biasness? Is it to do with a generational thing? Or is it to do with Martin Scorsese is so much part of an image he's crafted for himself that he is remaining rooted to that because he thinks it makes him more interesting, it keep, makes him more affirm. But it, it just comes across as a little bit fake. And then it opens up pockets of various dimensions of thought, contemplation, and various avenues that I could warble on for another 10 hours in contemplation and analysis and potential analysis and pseudo-intellectualism and idealism. I'm just breaking it down on a molecular level when it doesn't need to be. But it can be something very, very easy. Maybe he hasn't given it a chance, or maybe he just doesn't fucking care. He doesn't care that of beyond his wants, his loves, his likes, and he's not interested with what probably is the short amount of time that he has left on the earth, whether 10 years, 5 years, 20 years. Maybe that's just him, and it's part of his DNA, and that is his whole personality, that is his whole opinion, that is his whole want, need, and is satisfied in that. Maybe that is the whole thing. He just doesn't want to give over to it because with what little time he has left, he just wants to appreciate and try not to look back in anger at all the old films. But yeah, but next I shall be reviewing The Rage Monologues by Christopher Nosnibor. Believe in yourself. You can do it. The mind is everything. What you think, you become. Don't let yesterday take up too much of today. Teamwork can make the dream work. Definiteness of purpose is the starting point of all achievement. Winning isn't everything, but wanting to win is. You can never cross the ocean until you have the courage to lose sight of the shore. No one can make you feel inferior without your consent. Everything you've ever wanted is on the other side of fear. Change your thoughts and you change your world. And the world is behind you, ready to stab you in the back and fuck you up the arse. Not everyone gets to be an astronaut when they grow up. Cross the ocean? You can barely cross the road, and are so inept, you're at risk of drowning while rock-pooling with your kids. Do you still get your mum to tie your laces and wipe your ass? Get back to work. You aren't being paid to believe in the power of your dreams. Teams, together, we can do the work of one. Because there's nothing standing between you and your goal but a total lack of talent and complete failure of will. Dream small, it's your only hope for success. And there is no success like failure. Never let others hold you back when you're perfectly capable of doing it for yourself. Believe in yourself because no one else will, you talentless sack of shit. You really think you can do it? Yeah? You're completely fucking deluded. Hey everyone, welcome back. Uh, this is me, D.B. Spitzer, the editor and producer of Articulate Warbling with Zach Ferguson. 
Just wanted to let you know that we're hoping to make this a full-time series and not just a backdoor pilot. So if you would like to help sponsor the show, or if you have anything that you'd be like wanting to donate to help the show keep going, let us know. PGTTCM.com. And where you can reach Zach is in the show notes and also where you can buy his many books, Zach Ferguson. And you can check him out, of course, on Amazon.com where he's got all kinds of wonderful books from Dimension Horse to What Mr. Wants, Mr. Gets. All right, back to Zach. Why? Why? Why would you drag yourself to such a shit club? Those dismal dudes so loud you can't speak. Is it all drunken slappers? Cuts both ways across the sentences. Fat, leery minutes who are leaving music so loud. They have something to cover, given a ability to hold proper conversation. Okay, so you're sad and single and can't talk to the opposite sex. I'm sorry, I sympathise. I really do. I've been inept, tongue-tied, single, and isolated more times and for longer than you will ever know because I don't want to talk about it or own to the whole fucking world. So, you're out there with the shit dudes and the booze flowing and the chicks or dudes, no hope is one and all, with not a single iota of physical appeal. And so you've got your beer goggles on and your genitals are dripping juice, you're so fucking desperate to rub groins with someone, anyone, it doesn't matter anymore. And then, the photographer comes round, or your mate starts locking their phone. Why do you do it? That ridiculous girl, that absurd group shot pose, that face that looks like you're being anally raped. Why do you stand so close to your mate and pull a face like that? Do you want the world to think you're a rampant homosexual with dangerous inhuman proclivities about to commit mass murder, jizzing in your pants? The photo doesn't exactly say young, free and single, loving life, come and get it, does it? You look like some crazed psychopath, a monged out cretin with no social skills whatsoever. Why do you think it would be funny to grab that bird's tit or snug your mate or grab your crotch? Oh, the hilarity of pressing your cleavage or baring your arse, parading your pathetic cock or sticking your tongue out and crossing your eyes. Comedic genius of grabbing your friend inappropriately, lifting their shirt or pointing at them while pulling an amusing expression. Soak me up, my sides are burst. Did you think that flipping the bird or flying the bee would be funny? A sign of rebellion? Seriously, what the fuck is wrong with you? Or is that just the way you look? Hello, and on today's episode I shall be reviewing The Rage Monologues by... Christopher Nosnibor, of whom is the main man behind Oral Aggravation. I recommend you check out that page on Facebook and all and various people associated with it. He is also an editor and designer for Clinicality Press, of which he's released a assemblage of very transgressive, almost experimental um, pieces of works, anthologies, and also releases his own works under his press's name. Now, I was introduced to Christopher Nosnibor by being friends with someone on Facebook. I think it was Paul Tone, of whom he has done the wondrous, beautific, and, you know, selling point for the novel I wrote called Dimension Horse, and it's through Paul Tone that I uh, engaged um, more acquaintance 
esque online, but Christopher has been kind enough to buy a copy of Dimension Horse. So anyone who's a supporter of my work, I try to uh, seek out what they do. But he was on my, um, he was in my line of sight even before he'd kindly gone out and purchased a copy of my book. And the things that he's written just he just struck a chord with me. Uh, the books in particular. Retail Island, the rage monologues, the changing face of consumerism. Uh, this book is fucking stupid. Four books of his that I've purchased recently, and the first of which is the rage monologues. But before I go into my review, it may be short, but it's short but sweet. I just wanted to offer Christopher a little bit of a spotlight moment because just from the rage monologues, I can tell that this guy. Has a lot to say. He's um, got a lot building up inside of him, and creators and artists, those of whom who carry a cross like that and have a singular, uh, rarefied voice that has come from a suppression and more, you know, societally oppressed, that is creating the suppression of an, it's unleashing. Uh, something like that appeals to me. It's it's truthful, it's purposeful, and it lends not just credibility but weight behind what they are telling us. But I'm going to read the synopsis though. Uh, overall, it the, it does what the title of the book says it does. It is rage and it is monologues. It's not just rants, it's not just pontification. Uh, I think this book is also a very good metatextual thing to look at as a piece of art in of itself. But I'll read the synopsis just to give you a little taster. Modern life is full of niggles and frustrations. It's also bursting with ball aches and tempestuous turmoils on a global scale. What is it that winds you up or grinds your gears? Sometimes it's an accumulation of the little things that push you to or over the brink. So, what gets under your skin, gnaws away at your gut and drives you crazy? For Christopher Nosnibor, the answer is pretty much everything. Evolved as a spoken word project over the course of three years, the Rage Monologues is a horse enraged spittle spraying voice of one man against the world politics media poetry and post office cues it's open season in this collection of splenetic profanity laden tirades by turns amusing sad and simply uh, fueling the rage monologues is a relentless uncompromising and eye-poppingly vitriolic tour de force and that best covers it i feel like before I continue with this review, I really need to go reach out to Christopher and ask if I could read out a couple of these monologues for the podcast or whether he would be interested in reading them himself to include in this episode because I think it would be best captured and personified and reacted upon if something as this is handled and appropriated and used. But first of all, the review. The Rage Monologues is an emblem of the fact that everyone has an opinion and a very concurrent theme and usage and term is... Uh, opinions are like arseholes, everyone has one. And in of itself, the book does that. It's, it, it's that question of, well, Christopher, you are unleashing your opinion and your dislike on others having an opinion. That in itself is an opinion. And he takes a real vitriolic, and you know you know strident fucking stand when it comes to what's going on societally it's a book appealing to us but in that very it's not faux pas facade that a lot of people do because they're academically inclined this is the fury 
and the thunder and the lightning and the tectonic plate movement of someone's opinions and rage at life in general and it is a real appeal to everyone and I can envision Christopher using this as a spoken uh, word art piece or a piece of spoken prose and it being really almost a screaming to the celestial beings above whatever runs our fucking universe in plea to fucking listen and see and the it's emblematic within the name and the context there's a meta contextuality about it whereas it is a outcry for people to just shut the fuck up quash their opinions on such minim minimalist and banal and simplistic things and really look at the bigger picture of what's fucking going on beyond reality television, consumerism, populist fair and flair and all the fanfares and trumpets and red carpet spewings. This comes from a place of somebody who's, who, who's got a great evaluatory eye and really has something to say. And the book is, I, I stormed through it within 30 minutes, just sat down and read all of it. It's a hundred page uh, novella that is just the rage monologues but it hits up on things but it's stylistically inclined it's got its own vernacular and there's a few typos and errors in there that are just true to the vitriol and the enthusiasm and that fucking fury that comes out of people wanting to unleash that deep most that that, that really deeply seeded feeling and emotion that's accumulated and that you just need to unleash it really it's that type of finger enthusiasm where you're you can feel the rage and the fury not just through the prose not just through the minor typos and errors it, it lends itself that weight and that reality and the perspective that this is the real rage monologues it's not a ordained academically evaluated thing it comes from the heart and the soul and like all great fucking writers and you know imaginers it has to come from within it shouldn't be faux pas it shouldn't be cosmetic it shouldn't be externalized fuss that everything internalized is externalized and substructuralized and just put out in a very disingenuous way. I fucking love this and I cannot wait to jump into what else he has. So I will have to give the Rage Monologues 5 out of 5 stars. And since I recorded that review I have also read The Changing Face of Consumerism. And that is another book by Christopher Nosnabor, another masterful piece where it collects years worth of blogs talking up on the subject of consumerism, the changing face of consumerism, another brilliant book, another book that I would give five out of five stars. But next, we are very lucky to have a few audio clippets of readings, of rant, of passion coming from Christopher Nosnabor himself of Clinicality Press and oral aggravation so i introduce christopher nosnibor take it away my friend and thank you very much for joining us on it's not a rant it's articulate warbling i hope you enjoy what he has to say and hopefully it will encourage you to seek out his works and fucking well buy them now ladies and gentlemen we are on to mike correo's man oh man now man oh man is an extremely experimental book it has more in common with the likes of no one else I've read before. Is this a good thing or a bad thing? There's no fixed POV. There's no connective tissue. But it is a book that is densely packed with a meta-material, ectoplasmic, subconscious um, 
plague. It's repetitive, it's monotonous, it makes examples of experimentalism. It's commenting upon that within its function. I'm going to read the blurb, and this might be a short clip review, dependent on where my conscious stream goes and my evaluations. But I've just finished reading it, and I'm rather flummoxed, I'm rather frustrated, but I'm rather... Inspired. Here is another experimental piece that has again changed my relationship with fiction. Again, uh, it's not an emotion that I haven't felt before. I felt it with other writers, but it's it's just very good to see a creative individual, a writer such as Mike, who is also a filmmaker working out of Minneapolis, where he earned his BA in film and English literature at the University of Minnesota. And his words and his construction, it's unique, it's wholly unique, and it's this whole book is an emblem of the cliched norm of association when attributed to art in general, when art contained within books and within books are alternative. It's very experimental, but does something wholly unique in its capturing. But I'll read the uh, blurb for you. Two patrons appear in a dim calf one day. How they've arrived, where they've come from, and why they are there at all, they have no idea. What they do know is that they hate one another. So they smoke, they tinker, they talk about art, art. they talk about waiting, they talk about talking, they talk about talking, about talking. They talk about the strange messages coming through the radio, they talk about the even stranger guests who arrive, only to disappear a moment later. And as they fall deeper and deeper into this hysteria, what's uncovered might just make these two unlikely protagonists the most human of us all. Well, this is pretty much... Uh, a lie and I think that's great I think this book is one great big lie it can be easily misinterpreted as being something pretentious but it is emblematic of the structure and man and oh man or is it man oh man a distinctively separated identity is it one person two person we don't know this isn't from an unreliable narrator it's not even from unreliable narrators this is an extremely meta book where these characters are aware they're in a book but there's no structure it's almost as if these characters are evolving unto themselves contained within the book as almost as if the narrator is it mike i don't know has given away and just given up with them and it's basically two characters that aren't defined, aren't written, aren't fleshed out, have no semblance of characteristics, all except that they pontificate, they argue, they have this monotonous, pretentious, protracted, wordy conversation, and it is talking up and talking up and talking, but there's something very Lynchian about this book, but in a literary sense. It has a lot to say whilst saying not very much. It could be viewed as a meta-commentary upon experimental art or upon literature, or it could just be a whole cavalcade of different things it's a very complicated one it's one that I kind of anticipated that I would read in one sitting I didn't I had to put it down I had to come back and a lot of the monotony and the conversations are boring and soon the, the writing itself is white noise it is static but it's static alongside those small infinitesimal moments that is crafting this as a supposed narrative such as that they are experiencing as the characters. I think it's a very multi-layered, multi-tiered piece of writing. Very, very well crafted. There's a great ingenuity with Mike's prose. And every time these characters picked up a cigarette, it made me want to smoke even more. I don't know if Mike is a smoker himself, but 
I'm telling him the monotony of these characters and that process of sitting in this void built up of tables, built up of things that they feel is displaced. It's it's a book that I think, as short as it is, 106, 7 pages, uh, a lot, this could be built upon and annotated and imbued with so much. It'd be interesting to know what Mike intended with the book, but then he might make it more vacuous, more vague more mysterious by just keeping it you know hidden keeping his overall belief a little bit hidden there's so much that can be pulled apart i feel like if this was an annotated footnoted version the book could go on to live on as a 600 page magnum opus whereas the actual initial text is only 90 pages long because there's so much to read into this it's infuriating it's intoxicating it's lyrical it's prosaic it's monotonous it's boring it's hilarious it's something that truly tests you as a reader and really reinvents experimental fiction in a lot of ways and especially with prose and the relationships and interrelationships tied and anchored by and down and with with prose and story tropes and the ungovernable rules it's a joyous read whilst being a real pain in the fucking ass. if you're not one who's used to experimental books i wouldn't recommend this it's quite a dense read and it's very difficult not to imbue or fall into a deep abyss of contemplation and almost prophesizing and philosophizing upon these not these characters but this semblance this place this intention their opinions their uh, harboured emotions and relationships with the story or the supposed story, the supposed place that they are contained within this void that is known as the literary realm, the literary confines of a fucking novel. It's it's rather ingenious and I've got to tip my hat off to Mike Coro. And if I keep pronouncing his name wrong, uh, it's not my fault. He shouldn't have a oddly spelt surname. I'm only joking. I think it's Correo, or is it a silent A? Coro. But Mike C is extremely talented. Extremely, extremely talented. And I recommend this book most definitely. It's a five star read. No, no, no question of a doubt. So please pick up a copy of Man Oh Man, because you will be very disappointed. But thereafter, when the motion's settled, it will fuss dawn upon you that something far far fucking greater is going on and contained within this masterful experimental piece of prose and contemplation it's not a rant it's articulate warbling with zach ferguson written by zach ferguson produced and edited by db spitzer recorded at badger strip studios in glorious portland oregon zach's part is of course recorded in brighton england want to help the show Go to pgttcm.com. Check out what we've got. Go to Zach's shop uh, on in, in the show notes. Go to Zach's Instagram in the show notes. Find out how to help him out. And of course, Ashton Manor, Darkest Child by Kevin McLeod. So thank you so much and join us next time. Endless ream, introspective, egotistical, self-indulgent bollocks splurged across your blog, Facebook, MySpace, Myriad Small Press, online zines. Great, you've got a chapbook coming out soon. 
I'm certain to hear about your difficult childhood, your sibling rivalry, your children's scrapes, the pain and the anguish and your feelings. But do you really need to spew them out in endless tirades, four, five, six a day, the outpouring from the bottomless well of your troubled heart? And the pictures, selfie, 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 same poems, same background, same outfit, fun with friends in a bar, look how much fun you have, you're the life and soul, the funnest, most popular person ever, a social sensation, I've never seen anyone so happy with their friends in a beer, I want your life and I wish I was you. And look, your children are the most adorable children in the world, just amazing. And now, look at you, all serious, reading to a rapt audience at a spoken word night. But you're sad and alone so many days and evenings, and your mother's not well. A selfie, selfie, selfie! New jeans, new top! Did you really cook that fantastic-looking meal yourself? I could just eat it off the screen right now! You are without doubt the most amazing, incredible person ever to be such a rounded human being with a perfect life and a tortured soul, surmounting those obstacles and still churning out such sensational, heartfelt poetry day after day after day because you're crying on the inside. And please, please, please stop and just stop and keep your pitiful one into yourself, you vapid, sad, attention-seeking, fucking middle-aged cunt.